right, let's continue. Now we're going to – next point is union with the last Adam as king. And just talk briefly about the roles of Adam and uh, Christ as king. And, man, here and the next point, there could be a whole lot more said. Much has been said. But we'll just make a few observations on what that looks like and just see the Christ-centeredness of Scripture as, as the fulfillment of Adam. So king, in Genesis 1 – Adam was commissioned to be the first earthly king. He was given dominion, right? That's royal language. Again, Genesis 1 again says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, so we have the creation narrative, Genesis 1. And you don't have to turn there, but then we have Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is probably the first divinely inspired commentary we have. And it's really a commentary on Genesis 1. Psalm 8 is picked up by Hebrews 2. I do want you to turn there. So Hebrews 2 is going to quote Psalm 8, which is really a commentary on Genesis 1, and is going to apply it to Jesus. And it's not a full quote of Psalm 8, so let me just read some of the royal language from Psalm 8 that's applied to mankind. He's crowned with glory and honor. He's rulers over the works of his hands. He put everything under their feet. So humanity is clearly, as I said before, commissioned to rule on behalf of God. It's royal language. So let's look at Hebrews 2. Let's read 5 to 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place somewhere, someone, I mean, excuse me, there is a place someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. So they're, not, they're not ruling rightly. They're not being faithful kings. They haven't been since Genesis 3, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. David Van Drunen, a Reformed theologian at Westminster Cowley, writes, Jesus, as a true human being, fulfills the destiny of the human race in the original creation, namely, the destiny of enjoying dominion over the world to come with all glory and honor. That New Testament scholar Greg Beal, I'm really dependent on Beal's book on the temple for these next two points. Fantastic book, really dense uh, and very thorough, but rewarding. And Bill now is at Westminster. And he, he's made the case that God created Adam in his image in the garden. And Adam was to serve God as priest king. This is not new to many of us. He's going to be priest king in the temple sanctuary of Eden. So Eden isn't simply a garden. And we'll deal with the priestly aspect in the next chapter. But Bill writes, The intention seems to be that Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the border of the garden sanctuary into the inhospitable outer spaces. The outward expansion would include the goal of spreading the glorious presence of God. End quote. 
So, because of that, Genesis one twenty eight, with the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, can be seen as the first great commission in many ways that was repeatedly applied to humanity as history progressed. So Adam as king was to spread God's rule. He was commissioned to extend the boundaries of Eden until the whole created world would be full of God's glorious presence. But Adam and Eve failed. They failed in their commission. They preferred to be self-rulers. Genesis 3 is the first act of autonomy, supposed autonomy. So they wanted to be self-rule instead of ruled by God. And then we see the line. It just goes on. David, every king after him, failed to rule as God had ordained. But unlike Adam as well, as well as David, unlike Solomon, unlike all of Israel's kings, Jesus is the truly faithful ruler. He is the seed who crushes his enemy's head. Genesis 3.15. I mean, think about the storyline for a minute. Genesis 3, there's going to be one who crushes his enemy. Genesis 12, the, the promise to Abraham. Genesis 17, the covenant with Abraham is, is confirmed. And in Genesis 17, verse 6 and verse 16, God says kings will come from them. Kings. So, so we're looking for this ruler. Later on in chapter 49, we're the, the line of the tribe of Judah. It's from his hands that the scepter will not depart. The obedience of the nations will be his. So Jesus alone is the faithful Israelite king. Deuteronomy 17, the requirements for the king. Jesus alone embodies the Torah. He rules rightly and is expanding the kingdom of God by granting faith and repentance. So the last item is truly faith, fruitful as king. He's expanding the kingdom of God and will continue to. A whole lot more could be said about kingship. But let's, let's talk about priesthood. And I'm just going to say a little bit about priesthood as well. Christ as priest can be unpacked in many ways. Hebrews, John 17. So we've seen that Adam has, has we can call him the first king because he's commissioned to rule. Kings in ancient Mesopotamia would often create and keep extravagant gardens. So the role of Adam as a gardener further betrays him in royal terms. But he wasn't merely the first human king. He was the first priest king. So we can call Eden the first garden sanctuary. And some of you are familiar with this. If not, it's, it's important to be familiar with this on what God's doing. Remember, there's many authors, many authors here in this book, but there's ultimately one. So we look for hints. We look for illusions of what God is doing. When God created Adam, last Adam was already in mind. So we need to keep that in mind as we read the Scriptures. So the Eden was a garden sanctuary. It was the first temple in garden-like form. As Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham observes, the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is, a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. And these parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. So let me just run through uh, some similarities and these are found in the garden and also later in Exodus and the historical books to show that Eden is, is an archetypal, archetypal sanctuary or temple. First, Eden and later sanctuaries were both entered from the east. You see this in several places. Eden and later sanctuaries were guarded by cherubim. The lampstand later possibly symbolizes the tree of life. 
There were, there were arboreal decorations adorning the temple. This one's quite important. The Hebrew verbs avad, which means to serve or to serve, and shamar, to keep or to guard. It's used in, it's used in Adam, to Adam, in the garden in 2.15. He's to serve and to keep the garden. These two verbs are found in combination elsewhere only in passages that describe priestly duties in the sanctuary. That should be significant if we believe that God has, the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author here. These two verbs are only used in combination as they are with Adam to refer to the work of priests later. Gold and onyx are used to decorate later sanctuaries and, and priestly wardrobes and these are mentioned in Genesis 2, 11, and 12 first. Perhaps most importantly, the Lord walks in Eden as he later does in the tabernacle. It's ultimately about God's presence we're talking about here, as we've seen with Stephen. The river flowing from Eden, Genesis 2.10, is similar to the river flowing from the future Jerusalem temple in Ezekiel 47. You can spend a lot of time in Ezekiel 47. Eden language is used in Ezekiel. So this, this causes... Reformed theologian J.B. Fesco to write, Adam was an archetypal priest, not a farmer. Scanning the horizon of redemptive history, we find further confirmation of the garden temple thesis. At the end of redemptive history, it's not a massive city farm that descends out of the heavens, but a city temple. If the end of redemptive history represents God's intentions from the beginning, then he planted a temple in Eden, not a farm. End quote. This book's called Last Things First, and its study of Genesis 1 to 3 and the rest of eschatology. Really good. So Adam was supposed to guard the garden temple from anything that was unclean, but instead he listens to Eve, fails to guard against the serpent. So Adam is replaced with the cherubim. He's not a faithful priest. He's not guarding the purity of God's presence. Luke's gospel is informative in this regard. It's not by accident that the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness follows the genealogy of Jesus Christ that ends in Adam, son of God. Flip over there just so you can see it. Luke 3, end of Luke 3. Chapter breaks can be unfortunate things sometimes. So we have, look at verse 338, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and there's no subheading there, there's no numbers. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So just as Adam was tempted, so was Christ. Again, Ferguson writes, here the inclusion of the whole human history between Adam and Jesus suggests that the temptation and victory of the latter are to be interpreted in light of the testing and defeat of the former with all its baneful entail. So this temptation is one of the first events in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus rebuffs the temptation of the serpent. He regains enemy-occupied territory. He doesn't submit to the serpents. Think about the contrast. Adam had an abundance of food. Jesus had been fasting for 40 years, 40 days. Adam failed while in paradise, while Christ was victorious in the barren wilderness. Again, Ferguson, the second man son, second man dash son, thus undid what was done by the first man son. He obeyed and overcame as the last Adam, and now no further representative is needed. <clears throat> so we have an Eden rerun. 
But in the Eden rerun, the second Adam is faithful. The second Adam is the true priest king. And remember priest kings? You couldn't have priest kings. Remember when people tried to be priests and kings? Remember Saul? Didn't go well for Saul. Remember Uzziah? So in the law, there was clear specifications that you don't combine these offices. But we see hints in the Garden of Eden, don't we? Adam is this ruling figure and this priestly figure. And we see it. We see little hints throughout. Think about the storyline. Think about Isaiah 6. John tells us he sees Jesus. And he's up and he's on his throne. He's the king. And the train of his robe fills the temple. We have this priest kingly type language. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, fantastic chapter. The Lord said to my Lord, and we see it's David because this, the superscript and Jesus says David wrote the psalm. So David, the king, is talking to a king. The Jews would read that and think, what is going on? The Lord, David said to the king, who, who is this? Who is this one? Then we go down to verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This figure that Psalm 110 is speaking of is going to be a priestly king. Jesus. Jesus is the true priest king. Makes atonement for his people and intercession. Again, his head for his people representatively. So unlike Adam, Jesus guards the garden temple from the evil one. This may be why Mary thought Jesus was the gardener by mistake. You remember that in the end of John's gospel? It turns out she was right. <laughs> Unlike Adam, Jesus is the faithful gardener, the faithful king, the faithful priest. So that's union with the last Adam. Uh, now we'll look at union with Christ as the seed of Abraham. So we'll turn to what it means to be united to Christ, the true seed of Abraham. And in many ways, Abraham, like Noah before him, is a new Adam. As one New Testament scholar writes, the narrative quietly makes the point that Abraham and his family inherit in a measure the role of Adam and Eve. A rabbinic midrash on the book of Genesis records God as saying this, I will make Adam first, and if he goes astray, I will send Abraham to sort it out. So Genesis 12, turn there. That's the key chapter for our purposes here. Maybe the key chapter of the whole story of Scripture. I recall the context. Genesis 3 to 11, very dark time. Genesis 11 tells us the story of the Tower of Babel. Mankind tries to reverse God's plan. They're interested in filling the earth, or God's interested in filling the earth with his image. But the people of Babel try to avoid this by accessing heaven in their own strength. They want to make a name for themselves. And here we have the characteristic human way. We've got pride, self-sufficiency, idolatry, materialism. And the illusion of infinite achievement. I think it was Karl Barth who said that the Enlightenment began at Babel. <laughs> it's the characteristic human way. But no matter how they ascend, look at chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord still must come down. As high as they think they come, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city. So what, what's God to do now? Well, he confuses them. And he makes a name for another. They want to make a name for themselves. God's going to make a name for another. 
So he chooses an elderly, moon-worshipping couple with no children to be the launch pad for new creation. Abram is summoned by the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Romans 4.17 You can't read Genesis 12 and not believe in sovereign grace. As William Dumbrell, Old Testament theologian, writes, What is being offered in these verses is a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world, now set and trained by the call of Abram. Genesis 12 is the solution to the problem of Genesis 1 to 11. Here we have a new world. Ultimately, the new creation begins in this text. So let's read 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, it's important to see the structure here, so so put your eyes on the Bible here and, and look what we have. We have two commands, each followed by three promises. All right, so first command is go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now we have three promises. Verse 2 is the first one. One, I will make you into a great nation. Two, I will bless you. And three, I will make your name great. Then we have the second command, which is kind of hard in our English translations to see that it's a command because most translations say, you will be a blessing. That's what the new NIV has. You will be a blessing. But that's a command. That's an imperative. So it would be better to say, you be a blessing. So second command, be a blessing, followed by three promises. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so go, be, each followed by three promises. And there's a twofold agenda here. Look, notice first, verses 1 to the first half of 3, Abraham will be the recipient of blessing. Abraham and his family, which we call Israel, right? Israel will be the recipient of blessing. And then the second fold of the twofold agenda is Abraham will be the mediator of blessing. The last half of verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, okay? Keep that in mind. It's, it's, just, it's just hard to overestimate the importance of these chapters for everything. For everything. Abraham and his family are first of all recipients of blessing, then they're to be mediators of blessing. Okay, so now let's look at what it means. What does it mean for us? Union with Christ, the seed of Abraham... We'll see. We'll turn to Galatians 3 in a little while to see where, why we're calling Christ the seed of Abraham. What does it mean? Well, think about some promises that are made to Abraham. He's promised blessing. He's promised a big family. He's promised land. So let's turn to land. And land, very important theme in the Bible. I mean, the whole biblical narrative could be summarized as the journey from creation to new creation. God promises Abram that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. If you still got your Bible open, look at verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And one of the reasons it's so important to the story of Scripture, because land, as we've mentioned, as we saw yesterday, land is ultimately associated with the presence of God. 
Again, the storyline. Think about the storyline. Eden, the garden, God's presence. Moving on, the tabernacle. Then we have the temple. And then Jesus, as we've seen, is, is the true temple. But by extension later, the church is called the temple, as individuals and corporately in the Corinthian letters. And then ultimately, the new Eden, or the new Jerusalem. So we can talk about this in terms of land, or we can talk about it in terms of the presence of God. So for the purpose of this talk, I don't want to get too sidetracked because it's a very thorny issue, very uh, controversial issue. But I just want to say that by being united to the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the promise of land is ours. Now this is not to spiritualize the promise of land. Many have been guilty of spiritualizing land. I read a book recently by Gary Burge called Jesus in the Land and was real excited about it. But then he just ends up saying that the land promise is fulfilled in Christ. But that spiritualizes the promise of land. Land stays physical. But, contrary to some, it encompasses much more than a small plot of land in the Middle East. The land promise is fulfilled for those in Christ, Jew or Gentile, in the new earth. The passages, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm a humble, I'm a millennial guy. The passages in Isaiah 60 and 65 that speak of the new creation, and oftentimes primo guys will point to these passages to speak of the millennium. The, the major problem I have is with John picks up those passages, picks up Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 65 and quotes them in Revelation 20 to 22 as referring to the eternal state, not the millennium. So the promises in Isaiah 60 and 65 and 66 that mention the new heaven and the new earth ultimately find their fulfillment in the eternal state. So I want to get my theology from John, not John Darby. We can talk more in the Q&A. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. But 2 Corinthians 120. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 120. Now, only with the greatest difficulty can we exclude the land promise from no matter how many promises God has made. So what we see is the apostles universalize the land promise. From them, we learn that the promise of land was typological. So entrance into the promised land, Canaan, pointed forward to the new heavens and new earth. We learn how to interpret the land promise from Jesus and his apostles. And this is just New Covenant theology at its, at its basics. This is the, the hermeneutical principle of New Covenant theology is that we read the Old Testament in light of the New. And strangely... Covenant theology, on the one hand, and dispensationalism, on the other, have the same hermeneutical approach. They end up being strange, strange partners when it comes to two different things because covenant theology doesn't see the typological nature of circumcision. They get it wrong, so it transfers to baptism. Dispensationalism doesn't see the typological nature of land. So they have land hanging on over here and circumcision over here, and New Covenant theology in the middle wanting to say all of it is Christ-centered. We look at the New Testament for all of it. So I don't have the Westminster Confession bugging me. I, 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 was, you know, I was converted in college, so I don't have backgrounds to deal with that. I wasn't raised on the Schofield Bible over here. I'm just trying, to, just trying to be Christ-centered. And I think New Covenant theology is consistently Christocentric in terms of its hermeneutic. 
So we see this in a few places. Think in Hebrews 11 and 12, we see it. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus quotes Psalm 37, 11. This is, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the land. Jesus says, earth, in Matthew 5, 5. Uh, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg writes, by the way, Blomberg just came out with a chapter in the Perspectives book on the Sabbath. Uh, it came out just recently, and he did the Sabbath chapter. He called it Fulfillment View, but it's fantastic. It's New Covenant Theology. Uh, I asked him about it, and the editor just called it the Fulfillment View, so that's what he used but really good, uh, you know, pretty short because it's one chapter. But he writes this in Matthew. The future reward echoes Psalm thirty-seven eleven, but generalizes the promise of inheriting the land of Israel to include all of the earth. Christian hope does not look forward to inhabiting a particular country, but to ruling with Christ over all the globe and ultimately to enjoying, it, enjoying an entirely recreated earth and heavens. Revelations 20 and 22. Paul universalizes the promise to Abraham in Romans 4.13. This is a huge passage. Let me read it for you. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Where was Abraham promised the world? He does the same thing in Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I'm thinking he's referring to new earth. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the Davidic king, the last Adam, he will rule over the whole earth. As Fred mentioned last night, the obedience of the nations will be his. The nations will be his inheritance. The ends of the earth will be his possession. He will rule from sea to sea. So the land promise is ours, and it is physical. It's just the whole earth. It's not a small portion of it. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Moving on, union with the seed of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham has promised a big family. He's promised offspring. Genesis, indeed the whole Bible, anticipates a royal descendant from Abraham that will play a major role in bringing God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. As we've seen, Genesis 3, there's this one promised, this one who will crush the head of the serpent. We see in Genesis 12 the promises to Abraham of his family. Later on we see that a king will come from Abraham and Sarah in chapter 17. Then we see 49, that the, the scepter will not leave the tribe of Judah. Then we have David, who's promised a son, Solomon, ultimately Christ. Let me read 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, where God gives the promises to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, end quote. So in this passage, we see the collective noun, seed. It's a collective noun. We see seed being used to a singular person. And this is what Paul picks up. So let's go to Galatians 3. Abraham's seed is interpreted as the son of David, the Messiah, ultimately. Galatians is just so important, isn't it? Let's just read verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say 
and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So ultimately, the promises to Abraham are given to Christ, Paul says. So Christ is the one who ultimately has the offspring. Let's see a few places where we see that. Flip over to Romans 15, the end of Romans Paul wants to be really clear here. Romans 15, 8 to 12. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, and then he quotes from the historical section of the scriptures. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And now he quotes from the law. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Now he quotes from the poetic sections. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then he quotes from the prophetic writings. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. So he quotes from every section of the Old Testament to make his points. What the Old Testament promised has begun to be realized through Jesus Christ. The nations are blessed through Abraham's singular seed, Jesus. Flip over to Acts chapter 3. Let's read 21 to 26. Three twenty-one to 26. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who, gave, who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So again, nations are blessed through the seed of Abraham. So Abraham's offspring ultimately consists of all who find themselves in Christ. All who are united to Christ. So contrary to traditional dispensationalism, uh, we, this truth is all over the New Testament. Listen, I have much respect for both covenant theology and dispensationalism. I just, I just disagree. But man, we can learn a lot from both sides. But for me, Abraham's offspring is all who find themselves in Christ. And we see it in 1 Peter 2. Let me read with you Peter's grabbing these Old Testament this imagery and referring it to the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Right out of Exodus 19.5, right before the giving of the law. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Philippians 3, 2 and 3. Remember in Philippians, kind of out of nowhere, he has this address to the Judaizers. Remember, Judaizers were those who wanted to force Gentile Christians to live like Jews. So Paul kind of stops in his letter to Philippians and says, wait a minute, watch out. Watch out for those dogs. Very offensive because according to the law, dogs were unclean. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those kakus ergates, evil workers. They're all about works. They're all about good works. Paul says their works are evil. Watch out for the unclean animals. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the katatomain, those who mutilate the flesh. And we're here in the Septuagint, he's alluding back to the word that refers to those prophets of Baal that would cut themselves to please their God. Man, Paul's brave. Watch out for those who mutilate their flesh and clearly referring to circumcision to appease the false God. For we are the circumcision. We who glory in Christ Jesus, we who serve by the Spirit, we who put no confidence in the flesh. Turn to Galatians 3. Did I mention that Galatians was important? Look, look at verse uh, 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Understand, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. He could have said, are Israel. Who is Israel? Those who have faith. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. I mean, for me, that's crystal clear. If you belong to Christ, if you're united to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. Who is Abraham's seed? Israel. Look at chapter 4, verse 28. Now you, here we have the, the allegory in verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Verse 31. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Flip over to chapter 6. And before we go there, I'm gonna, I just want to say something before we read the verse because I think the verse is misread often. There's a rule of the new creation that Paul gives several places, actually. 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision doesn't matter or uncircumcision doesn't matter, keeping the commands of God. Galatians 5, circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter, but faith working through love. And here we have circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. In verse 15, this is the rule of the, cre the new creation, okay? The rule of the new creation. Who would hold to the rule of the new creation? Christians. In other words, ethnicity doesn't matter. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. They mean nothing. They count for nothing, he says. That's the rule of the new creation. A Jewish person wouldn't hold to that rule. All right, so now let's read chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. I love the New NIV's translation because they, they translate the chi there as an explicative chi and just put a dash. All who follow this rule, this rule of the new creation, dash to the Israel of God. And for me and mine, this cannot be ethnic Israel. It would turn his whole argument on its head. 
for him to say there's no distinction. There's no distinction. We're all children of God through faith. Neither Jew nor Greek, by the way, peace and mercy to the Jews. <laughs> it would just made no sense to him. So for me, this is the eschatological Israel of God. So what's so important to see here, though, and this is what I consider a distinctive New Covenant theology, is, again, the Christ-centeredness of it. Jesus is the center. He's the hermeneutical key. This is why I'm talking about this, because we're talking about union with Christ. So here's what I mean. Israel does not equal the church. That's characteristic of covenant theology. Israel is the church. And then depending on at least traditional classical dispensationalism, here's Israel and the church separated never to meet. Not never, but definitely radical separation. But here's the way the, the equation needs to go. It needs to be Israel, Jesus, church. Israel, the Messiah, anyone who finds themselves in the Messiah. A New Testament scholar, Bruce Longenecker, writes, By means of their union with Christ, Christians are joined to the single seed of Abraham and thereby find themselves to be the collective descendants of of Abraham. The mechanism in this Christological argument is not simply one of similarity of characteristic, that is faith, but incorporation into true Abrahamic descent by means of participation with Christ. End quote. So if you notice the language of Galatians, it wasn't you're it wasn't you're the seed of Abraham, was it? If you belong to Christ then you are seated. Of Union with Christ is the key to understanding the relationship between Israel and the church. Again, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Now I want to quote uh, Southern Baptist theologian Russell Moore at length because uh, it's just a great quote. It's pretty long, so, so listen attentively. For the New Covenant apostles, Jew-Gentile unity is pivotal to the early church. It's about more than human relational harmony. Instead, it acknowledges that God's kingdom purposes are in Christ. He is the last man in the true Israel, the bearer of the Spirit. A Jewish person who clings to the tribal markings of the Old Covenant acts as though the eschaton has not arrived, as though one were still waiting for the promised seed. Both Jews and Gentiles must instead see their identities not in themselves or in the flesh, but in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, the one who deserves the throne of David. He is the obedient Israel who inherits the blessings of the Mosaic Covenants. He is the propitiation of God's wrath. He is the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection and the life. Those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, receive with him all the eschatological blessings that are due to him. In him they are all, whether Jew or Gentile, sons of God, not only in terms of relationship with the Father, but also in terms of the promised inheritance. In Christ they all, whether Jew or Gentile, are sons of Abraham, the true circumcision, the holy nation, and the household and commonwealth of God. Both covenant theology and dispensationalism, however, often discuss Israel and the church without taking into account the Christocentric nature of biblical eschatology. The future restoration of Israel has never been promised to the unfaithful, unregenerate members of the nation. 
only to the faithful remnants. The church is not Israel, at least not in a direct, unmediated sense. The remnant of Israel, a biological descendant of Abraham, a circumcised Jewish firstborn son who is approved of by God for his obedience to the covenant, receives all the promises due to him. That's so important. God never promised unregenerate, unfaithful Israel anything. He promised the faithful remnant. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, there is one faithful remnant. The quote, the quote continues, Israel is, Jesus. Israel is Jesus of Nazareth, who, as promised to Israel, is raised from the dead and marked out with a spirit. Dispensationalists are right that only ethnic Jews receive the promised future restoration. But Paul makes clear that the seed of Abraham is singular, not plural. Only the circumcised can inherit the promised future for Israel. All believers, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, are forensically Jewish firstborn sons of God. They are in Christ. In Christ, I inherit all the promises due to Abraham's offspring so that everything that is true of him is true of me. The future of Israel, then, does not belong to Gentile believers, but only because they are in union with a Jewish Messiah. So the union with Christ, that's the key. That's the center of understanding all the promises to Israel are right. Jesus is the center. Interestingly, though, and perhaps inconsistently, Vern Poitras would agree. Vern Poitras is a Presbyterian uh, New Testament scholar here in Philly again at Westminster East. Some of these, especially these Westminster East guys, they're just great. Bibl the biblical theology movement has been so good for Baptists. And I read these guys, uh, Poitras, I read Gaffin, and they're just they're this close. They just keep bumping up against that confession, and they won't let them go. But in glory, I'm excited to talk to Gaffin. I'm excited to talk to Poitras and uh, talk about these things. So Poitras agrees. So here's what Poitras writes in his book on understanding dispensationalism. He writes, Because Christ is an Israelite and Christians are in union with Christ, Christians partake of the benefits promised to Israel and Judah in Jeremiah. With whom is the new covenant made? It's made with Israel and Judah. Hence it is made with Christians by virtue of Christ the Israelite. So remember, this is a Presbyterian covenant theologian here. The argument is strongest if one does not bluntly and simplistically assert that the church is a straight-line continuation of Israel. Rather, one proceeds by way of Christ himself as the center point of fulfillment of the promises. That is to say that we might inherit what he inherits. We are sons of Abraham because he is, and he quotes Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Now I say amen again, but as a Baptist, I have a basis to say amen. So the question I have for Vern is, how can you maintain this position while remaining a Pado-Baptist? If believers, follow me here, if believers receive the promises of Israel by union with Christ, how could this apply to infants? See, if union with Christ occurs through baptism, we've seen that New Testament connects faith and baptism. Infants can't exercise faith. It's Christ and his descendants who are blessed with Abraham. And Christ had no physical descendants. Jesus Christ has no grandchildren. So I don't understand how you can remain consistent without end up saying that all believers are adults. Adults are believers, and, and baptism follows. So offspring comes through union with Christ. Abraham has promised a great family, and that's, that's what we are. 
And, you know, this is one of the things, the new perspective, has, this is one of the pros of the new perspective on Paul. The new perspective has done many things, and it's broad, really new perspectives. But one of the things they've done is bring back to our attention. It's made us go back to the Bible. That's always a good thing. And they brought to our attention the importance of Jew-Gentile inclusion in Paul, right, right alongside justification. I don't think it's bound up with it, but it's, it's the first implication Paul does. Think about the context, the deal with justification. Jew-Gentile relations is always right before, right in the middle, or right after. So this has been helpful for us to see that we, as Gentile believers, we ought to be just as amazed that we're sitting here worshiping the one true God as we are amazed about forgiveness of sins. We ought to be just as amazed about Gentile inclusion as we are about justification by faith. God made a promise to Abraham. That's why we're here. Okay, so blessing. We've talked about land. We've talked about offspring. What about blessing? Blessing for the nations, we saw, is the bottom line of the promise given to Abraham. And blessing is a rich biblical concept, and it, it refers to God's characteristically generous and abundant giving of all good to his creatures. It implies the reversal of sin's curse and the restoration of creation's fullness. Michael Goheen writes, Blessing restores all the good that God had generously bestowed on the creation in the beginning and thus anticipates his subsequent redemptive work for the flourishing of human beings in relationship with God, with one another, and with the non-human creation. Galatians 3.14 defines the blessing in part as the Holy Spirit. He writes, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So part of the blessing to Abraham is the Holy Spirit. It's also forgiveness of sins. We see this in Romans 4, 6-9. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Blessed, blessed we're talking about blessing here. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Or in Galatians 3.8, we have, we have more insight into this blessing. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Quote, all nations will be blessed through you. End quote. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So aspects of blessing are justification. A right standing with God is part of the blessing of Abraham. The gift of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3 verse 14. But ultimately, it's the whole inheritance, isn't it? When we think of inheritance, think of sonship language, it's the whole world. We inherit all the promises that are due to Jesus because we find ourselves in Him. So the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, inheritance, those who are in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, will inherit the blessings promised to Abraham and his family. And what's so amazing about this story is that we play a part in it. We tend to think the story's over and we stop. But there's a long way to go. And we get to play a part in it. What's amazing is we help God keep his promise to Abraham. 
Evangelism is growing the family of Abraham. As Chris Wright puts it in his really good book, The Mission of God, the words of Jesus to his disciples that we saw yesterday in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the so-called Great Commission could be seen as a Christological mutation of the original Abrahamic commission. Go, be a blessing, and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So this is why we do missions. This is why, man, you guys, I want to encourage you. We don't, my church doesn't yet support TETM. I'm not getting anything for this. I'm, wanting, I'm pushing us that way. You guys who are pastors, get a line item in your church's budget for TETM. And get a line item in your own personal budget for TETM. You have the money. Good grief. We have the money. Man, give it away. Abraham has family that haven't been redeemed yet. So do that. If, if, as, as Steve mentioned, if we're not the people who are supporting TETM, who will? These guys are with us. And if you've had any experience with any of the missionaries, you know, man, their heart is for the Lord. This is part of our story. We're called to go in our own neighborhoods. Where some of us are called to go, and we're called to send money. We have so much money that's not being utilized for the kingdom. Abraham was blessed, and he was the mediator of blessing. We're blessed, and we're to be a blessing. Too often, we just argue about election. We just debate election. We don't understand the purpose in Scripture of election. The purpose of Scripture in election is not to sit around and debate. We are blessed to be a blessing. It's missiological at the end of the day. We're not blessed to sit around and talk and debate. As Christopher Wright again observed, we cannot speak biblically of the doctrine of election without insisting that it was never an end in itself, but a means to the greater end of the ingathering of the nations. Election must be seen as missiological, not merely soteriological. End quote. So God elects us, chooses us, and blesses us to be the bearers of his purpose for mankind. So Jesus is the true Israel and the true Adam. As Graham Cole puts it, Graham Cole's a systematic theologian at Trinity, Jesus is all that Israel should have been as God's son. Remember, Israel, the rabbinic midrash said, Israel was to be the solution of what happened with Adam. The problem ended up being that Israel herself was in Adam. We needed a faithful Adam, a faithful Israel. Jesus is all that Adam and Israel should have been as God's sons. In other words, Jesus is the true faithful Adam and the faithful Israel. End quote. So he's the center. He is the center. In him, we're truly human. In him, we find life, not death. Righteousness, not sin. In him, we're blessed with the Holy Spirit, full and final forgiveness of sins. In him, we will inherit the renewed cosmos. In the meantime, we are actors in the drama of God. We tell his story. And as we tell his story, God adds to Abraham's family, just as he promised he would. Genesis 15, 5. Look up to the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So let's pray and ask grace to do that. Father, so thankful for this rich rich revelation that we have that has your son at the climax of it all and we pray that our hearts have been stirred and that our minds have been uh, sharpened and uh, pray that we would be faithful as representing you as a, a small k king small p priest and lord that we would uh, enjoy the blessing and promises of abraham and also be a means to blessing just as you called abraham to be we pray it in jesus name
Amen. How you doing? Um, just a quick question about the new perspective. I think one of the strengths about that is their emphasis on union with Christ. And it's refreshing, actually, to read people who take very seriously the need for us understanding union with Christ. But Wright, particularly, then takes union with Christ and says, this is all we need. The reformed view of imputation, it's inchoate, it's groping, it's finely misinformed. Uh, everything that the reformed tradition is trying to get through imputation, we have with union. So we're more biblical, reformed is theological, misinformed. How do you relate imputation with union with Christ? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm working on a book, hopefully it'll be a long time, but it's going to be a whole chapter on union and imputation. Uh, it brings up a great point. You know, imputation is being attacked not only by the new perspective, but also by other evangelical scholars. Um, I forgot who Piper interacted with in his first book, Gundry maybe, or Guthrie maybe, I can't remember which. Um, Scott Haifman, Mark Seifred at Southern, there's many that are going after imputation on, on both ends. And I think it's been helpful, these attacks have been helpful, again, to get us to go back to the scriptures. Now, Steve mentioned that N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright's just so rhetorical that it's hard, and he'll just brush things aside. But I, when I'm reading Wright, and I've read about 15 of his books, his new book on justification, I wrote imputation on the margin probably 20 times, and he just doesn't use the word. But he'll use the language of, uh, of what's true of him is true of me, and that kind of language, but he'll denigrate the people he's building upon. So union, think about the passages for a minute. I think there is no doctrine of imputation of Christ's righteousness apart from union with Christ. That's why it's so important. Think for a minute. Think about any passage that speaks of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. Now, I know which ones you're thinking of, and they don't say that. They say righteousness of God. So when people like N.T. Wright, but even, even Reformed guys, Leon Morris, um, Ladd, um, Michael Byrd recently had made the statement, there is no verse that teaches that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So guys like Rye, they'll, they'll major on that. And there's been good books that have been written that don't emphasize it. But think with the passage, with Philippians 3, famous passage, not be, I want to be found, finish it, in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So every passage that deals with justification and imputation, we've got to ground it in union with Christ. Because exegetically speaking, there's not much evidence for imputation. So we've got to step back. And Carson uses the language of, of using different domains of discourse. You have exegesis and then theology. Theologically, we put it back and say we're counted righteous in Christ. So in union with Christ, we have the right standing. And even pastorally in your preaching, you've all used or seen the, the analogy of Imputation. So there's the bank account, and Christ has deposited his money or however you want to use it, and it floats over to your account. But again, where did Jesus go? We just have a bag of money. And the analogy that's better that Luther, Luther used, Melanchthon's are really responsible for the Reformed understanding of imputation. Luther roots it in union with Christ, more of a marriage analogy. So I'm in him. I'm righteous, not because of anything that came apart from Christ, because I'm united with him. God sees Christ when he looks at me. I'm hid with him. So the new perspective has been helpful to get us back to emphasizing union with Christ. But still, it's what we've always said. But there's, there are some now, Michael Byrd, Kevin Van Hooser is using the language now. Um, Wright, I think, uses the, the 
label incorporated righteousness. I'm traditional, so I'm fine with imputation, but I don't have a problem with incorporated righteousness because they're saying the same thing that reformers have always said, but they're emphasizing union with Christ. So it's not that his righteousness, the language right uses, it's not that it's a gas passed across a room, but we're incorporated into him and he is our representative. So union with Christ actually helps the reformed understanding of justification, in my opinion. But union with Christ is so important because without it, exegetically, you're going to be left. You're going to be lacking. My name is Steve Cowden, Greenville, South Carolina. Um, you addressed Ephesians chapter 2 about the one new man. That's a thrilling, thrilling passage. Um, in verse 14, he is our peace who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition. Uh, someone made a statement about that last night in a discussion, and I realized that... Uh, I myself not really sure what that middle wall of partition is. I have my own ideas, but I'd certainly like to hear yours. Yeah, I think keep reading verse 15 by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. I think he's talking about the law. Well, All of it, not not a certain as not a division of it or a Yeah. So let, let me further clarify uh, my question anyway. Uh, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments, contagions, ordinances, that he might create himself of the two one of the two one new man. Um, just in what way was it a wall of partition, you know, that separated us and uh, the so making peace, sort of this sense of enmity, he slain the enmity thereby. Um, is that enmity our enmity between us and God or between one another? because it seems to be the middle wall apart, the emphasis being on the division between us and the two being, being made one. And so then enmity is brought in, and was that enmity you know, between us and God, or was there enmity one with another? Yeah, great question. I, I think it's, think about the whole chapter. We started chapter 2, 1 to 10, all on the individual, 11 to 22, all about the community. And so I think it's on the horizontal level. And you think about the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles, especially here, but even, even earlier. So I heard Wright say one time that if people would have put um, Ephesians in the place of Romans on ter in terms of emphasis, the new perspective never would have had to have come because Ephesians is all about both. It's both and. It's just it's forensic declaration and covenant community inclusion, Jew and Gentile. So I think it's more Jew-Gentile relations. Joe Krieger, Buffalo, New York. Um, in, when you're talking a little bit about Beal and the temple and all of that, uh, I'm sure many may be very familiar with that. Um, you also, just as a little bit of an aside, made a quick reference uh, and used a term uh, where Jesus himself embodies Torah. And I know there would be a number of people here that would greatly resonate with that idea and to that. But there might be some that might not quite understand what you mean by that. So could you just uh, make a little bit more of a comment on that when you, when you mentioned that Jesus himself embodies Torah and if in that context there's incarnational implications there, etc.? Sure, yeah. I, uh, I didn't go to the passage, but when I made that point, I was kind of talking about the storyline of, uh, of kings. So kings, the first ruler's promise in Genesis chapter 3. Then we have Genesis 17, uh, where the king will come from Abraham and Sarah. There's notes in 35 of royal language. 49, the scepter will not, 49.10, the scepter will not leave the hands of uh, this one from the tribe of Judah, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Um, and I kept moving without kind of telling you. I kept moving along the storyline in terms of kingship. You know, these themes you can trace from 
from Genesis to Revelation, kingship is one of them. And when I said that, I'm, I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 17. I think I just said something like um, prescriptions for the king, but let me just read what I had in mind. This is the law's prescriptions for what the king is to be like, the Israelite king. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you. You're not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It's to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Now let's ask... Did Solomon acquire horses or wives? The point, the point is only Jesus fulfills the prescriptions of the law in Deuteronomy 17. He and he alone. It almost seems like Solomon was on an agenda to contradict every sentence in that passage. <laughs> so he's to have the, he's have a copy of the scroll. He's to, pretty simple though, really. Have the Bible and, and follow it. <laughs> but it couldn't happen. They didn't have the spirit. Jim Clemens, member of Madoc Baptist Church in Madoc, Ontario. I'm almost terrified to ask a question in this context. My knees are shaking under me because my question is so simple and goes back to the very beginning of the discussions today. And the question would be simply this, is baptism necessary for salvation because of your linkage of faith and baptism? I'd like to ask a question about Israel in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, but I'll, I'll leave that for someone else. <laughs> I'll leave it out there. <laughs> Is baptism necessary for salvation? No. And then, but here's the, here's the complication for, for us this far out. We were talking about the break. When Paul, for Paul to say baptism meant to say faith. So if you ask Paul, Does that, is that water really significant? I think he would say not necessarily, not in and of itself. So the, all the passages, and I think we have to do something to do justice with all the passages. And you guys know them. You've encountered Church of Christ people. You've encountered people that will just, especially Acts, they'll grab a verse out of Acts and try to contradict the Reformation or whatever it is. So the best way, I think, to put it together is to describe it how, how I did with, and I'm using Stein and James Dunn, several people have done it, to say, yeah, I can say this statement, baptism unites you to Christ. But if I ever say that, I want to be sure to make all the qualifications that I wouldn't have had to make in the first century. Because we were talking about, like an Acts, if someone was baptized in the Spirit and then later baptized with water and walked away, I'm of the opinion that later on, Peter's talking to whoever about it, he could have just said, yeah, we baptized him. You know, so-and-so got baptized. And for them, they knew what it meant. It wasn't that there's anything special in the water. It means that either they trusted Christ, not either, that they trusted Christ, they confessed him as Lord, they repented, all those things. But today it requires a lot of explanation. So anytime you're going to talk about baptism, you, got to, you can't use New Testament language anymore, honestly. You've got to unpack it because of all the baggage. Now, Baptists uniquely have the right to do what I did. Others have all sorts of trouble. 
uh, Les Bollinger, Beaver Baptist Church in Beaver, Pennsylvania. Um, good presentation, Blake. Thank you. Thanks. Um, most discussions that I'm familiar with about the union with Christ seems to emphasize the effects or benefits of it. In other words, what's true of Christ is true of us. And, and that's all well and good, but I wonder if it doesn't get taught as much or developed as much because there's a fuzziness as to just what is happening or what has happened when we were united with Christ. Sometimes it's talked about in a positional sense, um, and that's, that's certainly true, uh, kind of a, a declaration. But then there's also language in the scripture that seems to speak of something spiritually or metaphysically, or I'm, not, I'm, I'm searching for the, right, the word for it, that has taken place. So like when Paul says, do not lie with a prostitute, because you are causing Christ to lie with that prostitute. Well, that's positional language doesn't really kind of explain that. So, have you anything to share with us on what you think is happening, what the scripture teaches about what has happened when we were united with Christ? What, what, what's, what's taken place? What's the reality there? Yeah, that's a hard question because there's so many passages that, uh, that have a different shade of meaning. That's why I went, there's a lot of <clears throat> opinions on what the in and in Christ means. Um, a lot, and I, I think locative, mean, meaning location, it explains all the nuances. So it's a matter of being transitioned into Christ, and that means a whole lot of things, like you said, all the blessings. But but it's beyond positional, absolutely, and that's where Calvin speaks of the twofold grace. And this is where in the, the definition that I use in the beginning from Demarest, he talks about the positional and the experiential, because this isn't all abstract. I've been crucified with Christ; it's no longer I who live; Christ lives in me. This is the Christian life. But putting words on it, you know, except for wanting to emphasize representation, identification, this is, I'm just grappling. Because the scriptures don't lay it out. You know, and John Riesinger has all taught us when the scriptures are silent, you need to be silent. I hate sermons that make me think so hard that I'm not sure whether I agree or disagree. <laughs> this makes me spin my wheels and I appreciate them very much. Uh, what I want to do is make a comment on a, a question. I think I read someplace by John Brown where he said the only place in all of the world's literature, no matter what kind of literature, poetry, prose, or what, or what nation it is or whatever, ever uses the phrase to describe a relationship with two people as in the other one. In Christ is a phrase which is not, that's not used and nothing else. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to my, I haven't studied a lot of uh, other religions, but I would have to agree with what I've, what I've seen. Of course, it's, it's um, interchangeable, as we've seen in the scriptures. We and him, he and us, and both. But yeah, I think it's unique because we uniquely have a Messiah, right? Chris Greer, Greenville, South Carolina. Um, was Abraham in union with Christ? Yeah, was Abraham in union with Christ? I think that's like asking, was Abraham a Christian? So yes and no. Well, because... Our union is bound up with the redemptive, you know, the, the cross work, mm -hmm. all these things. That, that's what we're united with. So you're saying that even before that was accomplished, Abraham was, was united with all these things. Well, I, the way I like to talk about it is Abraham believed the promises of God, all Israelites, the remnant anyway, believed the promises of God covenantally defined. So looking forward, yes. But what I want to, I think union with Christ is, is just like the church. 
or being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. New, it's a new covenant reality. doesn't mean Abraham's not going to be on the new heavens and new earth with us, but it just means I would, I would describe his relationship with the Lord differently than I would ours this side of Pentecost, this side of the resurrection. Mo Bergeron, Boswin, Sovereign Grace Fellowship. I, I, I would love to hear more uh, somewhere along the line, someone unpack uh, Galatians 3.14. I think that's where would it really be helpful because speaking of Abraham, the righteousness that uh, we receive, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And I, I don't think he means there strictly that the Spirit there is something intellectually to, to ponder or think about, but I think it's the indwelling of the paraclete uh, or as some theologians would put it, the second Jesus. If anything, that's the thrust of some of us anyways, that we feel that that aspect is what needs to be spoken about, uh, not to the neglect of the, the word itself, but the word itself bears witness to this union that we have with Christ. And as a brother Ed said earlier today, maybe it sounds too mystical. <laughs> uh, and it is mystical, and there's no denying that. But I would love to, to um, because he's talking about righteousness in verse 11 of Galatians 3. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And, and ultimately he just drives at the point so that this relationship, this righteousness comes to be appreciated or, or lived through us by Christ in us. So that this is realized, of course, because of spirit union, or union to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And again, speaking of more can be said, if the book ever comes out, there'll be a chapter on the relation of union with Christ and union with the Spirit. Let me just read one passage. Uh, we could go to many, but Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. Remember that transcendental antithesis? If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Okay, Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So the Spirit and Christ, he, he flips back and, back and forth between who it is that's living in us. Is it Christ? Yes. Is it the Spirit? Yes. So in Galatians 3, this is again New Covenant theology hermeneutics. We're learning from what Paul's doing. In a similar way, I don't read Abraham being promised the world in Genesis 12, 15, 17. Paul does. Who am I going to go with? But we also, it's not all we have though, right? We have progressive revelation. And we see from the Old Testament, you have in the Psalms this language of the king will rule from sea to sea. Well, that's not Jerusalem. So we have in the Old Testament itself anticipation of something more with the land. All right, so that's not what Mo asked. With the Spirit here, you read Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Do you see anything about the Holy Spirit? No. So what do you do? Well, you read the Bible like Paul was doing, and Chad's sermon was so great yesterday because he showed us what, how Stephen interprets the Bible. It's canonical interpretation. It's biblical theology, uh, biblical theological interpretation, so that Paul, standing on this side of all the promises, can think of even the promise to Abraham, which is the initial promise, as including the Spirit. 
So in Paul's mind, he's got it all. He's got the whole story in his background. He's got the promise of the Messiah. He's got the promise to Abraham of a great family. He's got the promise in Jeremiah 31 of the of full and final forgiveness of sins being taught by the Lord. You know, Jeremiah 31, speaking of the New Covenant, doesn't say anything about the Spirit either. But the New Testament writers read Jeremiah 31 through the lens of Ezekiel 36 and 37. Or you could say that vice versa. You could say that the New Testament writers read Ezekiel 36 and 37 through the lens of Jeremiah 31. For them, it's the same story, right? So Paul's saying, well, the, the promise given to Abraham was the Spirit. Well, he's thinking of the whole Old Testament storyline that includes full and final forgiveness of sins, all the righteousness language, justification, but also the gift of the Spirit that Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, Isaiah 32, 15, Isaiah 44, 3. It's all a package deal. God's promises are coming to fruition in the here and now through the cross and resurrection. I was sort of uh, <clears throat> stirred by Les's, uh emphasis on what is the nature of union with Christ um, and uh, by Chris's question are was Abraham in union with Christ so I guess uh, I'm thinking of uh, John 13 through 17 to, which to me is the most central statement in scripture of union with Christ mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Jesus you know in there of course we're all I'm sure familiar you know I and my father will come and, and take up our abode in you by the Holy Spirit the paraclete so there's some real experience of union with Christ by the Holy Spirit where he truly is in us and we truly are in him uh, spiritually, really, genuinely. <clears throat> so the question becomes, and it's really a biblical theological issue where it seems that uh, covenant theology flattens history, calls Abraham a Christian, would say he was in union with Christ. And uh, one of my, in my discussions with them, I've always said, well, how can you be in union with Christ before he ever came into existence as the God-man? Um, so I guess the, <clears throat> the, the basic question is, in our union with Christ, is it union with the eternal Son, who has always been the Son, or is it in union with the 160 pounds of DNA at the right hand of God? Yeah, that's a good question that I would never want to separate. Um, and, and remember, think and think, let's use Abraham, for, for example. Abraham was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So Gaffin's the one who uses the, the language of predestinarian, I think he says redemptive historical, experiential. So um, the, the Ephesians 1.4, before the creation of the world, you're not dealing with 160 pounds DNA. But at the same time, you know it's coming. So it's really hard to separate the two, I think. But then the majority, though, of the passages are dealing with the finished work of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, as representative. So I don't know if I'd want to separate them because we have, we have so much. You know, We're given so much data on what union means. But it ultimately started in eternity, happened at the cross, and then in our own life experience. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we're in union with Christ with all, everything, all of it. So I wouldn't want to, again, I want to say yeah, all of it. Because of the way the, the Scripture is presented, it doesn't really, and I, these are categories that I'm using, you know. I just thought for this talk, Adam and Abraham would be the best ways to focus. But we could talk about all aspects of who Jesus is being for us. But the emphasis, though, I think is certainly on Christ crucified and risen, dying with him, being raised with him. Thank you.